As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Ronaldo's Ronaldo, but he, he really had barely played for three years. So how he suddenly kind of got up to speed and in full fitness for the World Cup is, is incredible. Hello, it's the Athletic Football Tactics podcast brought to you by The Athletic. T-minus not very many days until the World Cup begins in Qatar and that is on our agenda today. Uh, it's just myself, Ali Maxwell and Michael Cox with me. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Ali. Uh, looking forward to the World Cup now. I think for the first time I'm in excitement mode once we get the, the final weekend of the Premier League out of the way, of course. What do you think your output will be like during the World Cup for those listening who are excited for the athletics coverage of it and specifically what you might be offering on the tactical side? Do you have an idea of how you're going to approach it? You're going to be quite reactive during the tournament? A bit of both. I think we've got some planned uh, articles in the works. I'm quite interested in the performance of African sides at this World Cup. I think a few of them are looking quite interesting. I also suspect that African sides will benefit most from the expansion uh, to 48 teams at the next World Cup, but maybe that's a slightly different story. Um, but yeah, obviously lots of lots of match analysis. I think particularly at the knockout stage, I think in the group stage, there's going to be some more kind of interesting, quirky stories about countries who might not actually win it. But once it gets down to the knockout stage, then uh, yeah, I think pure analysis from that point onwards. And you and you aren't going to be out there on the ground for much of it. You're taking a, a much more direct route than your colleagues, Nick Miller and, and Laurie Whitwell. Do, do we know how, how they're getting on, where they've got to on their, on their odyssey to Qatar? Uh, I'm sorry to say I have no idea and I can't even quite follow the uh, the planned route. It's not, uh, yeah, like you say, it's not the most direct route. But yeah, I'm there for the group stage and like I say, hopefully doing some interesting stuff and then back home and watching it on TV for the knockouts. So next week on this podcast feed will be the big World Cup preview football tactics pod style, a two-parter most likely as well. So I'm very excited for that. Today... Well, Michael, we're going to expand on a piece that you've written for The Athletic as part of, of the World Cup uh, build-up. It's out on Thursday morning, the 10th. What are we going for here as a, as a title, as a theme? H- how to win the World Cup? The anatomy of a World Cup win? I always like to, to get anatomy in there, so to speak. 
Well, I'll leave that to my editors, I suppose. You know, us writers never get to choose our own headlines, do we? But um, <laughs> yeah, I've got a bit of a thing that I think people overestimate the quality you need to win the World Cup. You know, I think going to the tournament, people are kind of assessing the teams as if they're looking for a, you know, a Champions League winner or a, a, a league title winner. I just don't think you have to be that good. There probably hasn't been a truly great side that has won the World Cup since, I mean, what, 2002? I think if you're being generous to mm. that Brazil side, I think generally you have to be solid. You have to uh, be able to nick a goal from here or there. You don't need a prolific striker. You usually need extra time or penalties at some point along the way. Um, and yeah, if, if you're looking for kind of all out attacking dynamism and intense pressing and rotation of movement, then... I kind of think maybe you're looking for the wrong things. It's it's usually pretty solid teams who win the World Cup. It, it makes analysis quite difficult, predictions quite difficult, because a lot of the things that you're talking about there, particularly in such a, a low-scoring sport, knockout tournament football inter- internationally tends to be quite low-margin stuff, extra time, penalties. There's a lot of luck involved here right which which isn't necessarily helpful for those who who always want answers all the time yeah i think you're right and a lot of games that are decided by very fine margins whether that's penalties or extra time or i always think set pieces as well play a really big part in the knockout stages of the world cup so yeah it's those factors that it's obviously difficult to uh predict i feel like a lot of the discourse a narrative around international football and major tournaments somewhat frustrates you. We, you know, we've been doing this podcast for three years. We've done tons of episodes looking at England and Southgate, looking at various major tournaments that have happened while we've been going. Is this what this piece was about, sort of trying to bust some myths? Because there is a lot of mythology that comes after World Cups and off the back of them. Maybe in part. I think, I mean, the the, the key there, I think, is there's always this demand that managers pick informed players and it's almost like people at that's that's just the surefire win way to win international tournaments. I, I just don't really see any evidence of that. I think when you look back through the last World Cup winners, last few World Cup winners, generally they just have their favourites and they have a, a solid group of generally experienced players that they rely upon. And even if a player's had a bad season, they generally managers generally have faith in those players and often they come good. I don't really see much evidence of players who are picked on form and then suddenly have a storming World Cup and win it. Um, I just haven't seen it happen. It's something that we've spoken about so much, haven't we? Uh, Specifically with with England and with Southgate, uh, his sort of trusty core, if you will, uh, and being fairly inflexible in terms of uh, giving opportunities, certainly meaningful, competitive opportunities to, let's say, the more informed players or, or the next cabs off the rank, even when they're being um, touted by the media and by fans. So would you say that international football is cycles, basically? Cycles of of a core, uh, cycles of a manager overseeing a core. And if so, how do you sort of decide, you know, which team's core is experienced enough ready to attack and and win a a major tournament rather than well actually we're down at the end of the cycle here and a new cycle is needed it it strikes me as so difficult to work that out yeah I think that's fair and I think sometimes people I mean a lot of this stuff with 
saying that managers should pick form players, informed players. I think often people just get sick of watching the same players again and again. I feel like with the discourse for England over the last 10, 15 years has constantly just been, you know, let's move on to the next generation, uh, regardless of really whether that generation is ready. There was a lot of, remember after the, the golden generation of Beckham and Gerard and Lampard, there was so much kind of clamour to get them out of the team and move on to the next lot. But England just didn't have the players at that point. I mean, when you look at the the, the players born, say, 1985 to 1987-ish for England, we just didn't have many top-class players. I mean, Rooney was an exception. Joe Hart, when he was playing very well, was an exception. But the reason England held on to the golden generation for so long was because the ones following them weren't that good. Um, I think, obviously, there is a new generation now, but you do see that with other national teams. I mean, someone like Chile, for example, now haven't qualified for the last two World Cups, having been really exciting at, at 2010 and 2014. And there's been, you know, criticism managers have stuck with that old generation. But there isn't anyone new. You just have to rely on players who are in their mid-30s or you're playing players who aren't good enough. So, um, yeah, I, I think I think it tends to be a, a fairly settled group that wins the World Cup uh, rather than kind of picking newcomers for the sake of it. But also sort of trying to be objective about the teams that have won the World Cup. So specifically, you're looking at the last six World Cup winning teams. That's France in 2018 and France in 1998, uh, the sort of bread in the sandwich, if you will. And then in between that, Germany 2014, Spain 2010, Italy 2006, Brazil 2002. What I loved about the piece was basically you highlighting that these teams weren't incredible, weren't perfect. Yes, they won the World Cup, but purely from a footballing perspective, you know, it's not always some perfect side that wins the World Cup every year. Yeah, I can't believe you said the bread and the sandwich rather than the baguette, considering you were talking about <laughs> France, but there you go. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think any of those teams have, won, have been kind of completely convincing winners, with the probable exception of Brazil in 2002, who I don't think many people would argue against. But, I mean, they were really unfancy going into the tournament. They'd had their worst ever qualification campaign. I think it went down to the last two or three games for them to confirm their place in in uh, Japan and Korea. And the team that uh, Scolari ended up throwing together had barely played together, in part because Ronaldo had been injured for, for three years. During that period, he'd only scored seven Serie A goals, I think, in, in three years because of injury. Um, I don't think he'd scored for Brazil for about three years as well. So this was kind of a team that that got together at the last minute. And even there was quite a big change to the way that they played midway through the tournament when they brought in Cleberson as really a second defensive midfielder for Janinho. So uh, I, I, it is very difficult to predict the identity of the World Cup winner, partly because there's a lot of competition, partly because it's a, a knockout competition as well. Um, but yeah, it's it's you do get these kind of teams just falling into place at the last minute. And I think when teams fall into place, it's generally that generally means they're solid and quite well organised rather than there's this kind of level of attacking excitement that you, you can't imagine. You know, that that just doesn't tend to happen at international level. Yeah, I do think that the analysis of World Cup winning teams does lose detail over time, but uh, and, and understandably so. It is, the, it is the pinnacle, of course, of international football. Um, just tell me, why did you start here at 1998? Why not go further back? It's tough to explain. I think France 98, just that tournament feels like... It felt a bit more modern. It felt like, to me, a, maybe a slightly new era of the way that football was being played. Um, 94, I think, still feels a little bit 
old school. I think of that and 1990 is quite similar in style, those World Cups. Um, so yeah, 98 to me felt the most relevant to the modern day. And I think the first tournament with 32 teams as well, which yeah, that is helps with uh, statistical analysis, certainly, and keeping everything on a level playing field. Uh, of course, the football at, at elite club level looks incredibly different now compared to 1998. It looks pretty different to how it looked in 2010, let's say, when Spain won it, when Barcelona were dominating. Has international football World Cups followed suit and gone through the same sort of general, broad, tactical shifts? I feel like it's a few years behind. I I can't really work out how many years behind. I guess five to ten years behind, (laughs) I think, in terms of the tactical concepts. But I think there's certain World Cups where the club game has moved on and the international game hasn't. I think 2010 is the best example of that, where at club level there was a huge focus on pressing and intensity and quite integrated possession play. And it felt like at international level it was real poor imitation of that um, with Spain the only side really playing roughly modern football or the kind of football that those players were playing for their mm. clubs um, so yeah it is of course it's progressed but there's just fewer games there's fewer games for sides to to play good football to, to work together on the training ground I feel like that's going to be a particular issue this time around you know with about a week of preparation on the training ground no friendlies um, you know the players are really going to go go into it and I think have just been working on the basics the defensive organisation probably set pieces but whether you can put that much focus on attacking movements when you've only got a week on the training ground I don't know Is the group stage going to be seriously grim to watch I, I mean as you know I watch a lot of uh, EFL football and because the championship is stopping for the World Cup they've had to squeeze in probably three rounds more at this stage of the season than they ordinarily would have played and it's a league where teams play 46 games anyway so it's already you know much busier than the Premier League they've been playing what feels like every midweek and every weekend for the last month or so and the quality of football on display, the intensity that the players are able to, the intensity levels that the players are hitting, both seem like a huge drop off from what we might expect. And clearly this is a different level of football, but it does make me somewhat concerned. I mean, the fact that players like, let's say Luke Shaw of Manchester United will will likely play for them at Fulham on Sunday, the 13th of November, 4.30 kickoff. On Monday, the 21st of November, so seven, eight days later, he'll take to the field for, for England's first World Cup match. I mean, that is, it's unprecedented. It is. I, I don't know why you chose Luke Shaw, but I kind of understand why you did. Yeah, I think I, it's... Um... I, honestly, my working was Manchester United players, Rashford, not guaranteed to start for England, Maguire, not quite sure what's happening with Maguire at the moment, Luke Shaw... Definitely starting for Man U at the moment and Chilwell's injured, so I assume he'll start for England as well. I think you're probably right, although I bet there'll be a bit of rotation and I wouldn't be surprised to see Kieran Trippier doing a, another stint on the left. But yeah, you're right. It's going to be tough for the players. I get the impression it will probably have the most impact when if a, if a big side are like 2-0 up midway through the second half, I just can't see the starting eleven really pushing forward to 
to run up big score lines. I just think they'll conserve their energy. And of course, you'll have subs coming on in 26-man squads, uh, five substitutes available, and substitutes always want to come off the bench and impress. Um, but I tend to think that will be a bit more individualistic attacking rather than uh, you know great team performances. I'm a bit worried that we might get back to 2010 levels of low margin staff. I mean, what what happened in 2010? The group stage had eight teams of the 32. A quarter of teams conceded one goal or no goals in their three <laughs> group games. There were only 101 goals in 48 group games. That was 2.1 per game. And that's with a 7-0 in there as well, which was Portugal against North Korea. If you take that out, uh, it's 94 goals in, in 47 games. So exactly two goals per game. What what the hell happened there? Was that a, a, a general tactical thing? I think it was a bit of a tactical thing. It feels to me like the international sides had broadly moved towards playing possession football. Spain had played at the Euros that Barcelona were playing, but they hadn't really brought in any integrated uh, pressing. I think Spain were the only side who did that, particularly what and Chile as well actually did that very well at that tournament. Um, I also think, I mean, it became a bit of a joke, but I honestly think the ball was a massive issue at that tournament. <laughs> I mean, if you ever played with one, you just couldn't, you just couldn't kick it over twenty yards. Right. I, I thought it was, I mean, genuinely disgraceful that the manufacturers came up with something that was so unsuitable for for football. Just, for, um, just, just I mean, to make what, sure we're representing both sides here, Diego Forlan does not agree with that statement. He absolutely loved the Jabulani and wants to make that clear. He did. There was at least one of his goals up. <laughs> Maybe that was a deflection. There was a few goals of that tournament I thought were quite <laughs> unusual trajectories, I must say. Right. But I think it's worth pointing out. I'd like to, I don't have the stats to hand, but I'd like to see the open play goals per game from 2018 because so many goals of that tournament were set pieces and penalties. And I reckon, in terms of open play, I don't think it would be that much, that many more goals than we saw in 2010, but I could be wrong on I that. I mean, that that's very interesting because, you know, just looking at the top level stats, the goal rate of 2018 was was very high, 2.64 goals per game in the tournament. There was loads of late drama. Nine of the winning goals in the tournament came in the 90th minute or later. I think the the, the, the next best is four or five in previous tournaments. It, it was also the third straight World Cup where the defending champions went out in the group stages, which is pretty amazing, really. That was Germany uh, in 2018, having won it in 2014. Spain in 2014, winning in 2010, Italy 2010, having won in 2006. Is there any substance or reason to this trend, Michael? Can we expect France to go out in the group stages? Well, they did, of course, in 2002 as well, when they'd won it in 1998. So yeah, it's a pretty thickens. common thing. Why? <laughs> yeah, is, this, is this about cycles? Are we back to cycles? The mad thing is they all really deserve to as well. I mean, I think Germany at 2018 maybe weren't, that bad and if you'd given them a couple more games they would have clicked but I mean some of them were just completely outplayed Italy in, in 2010 were a terrible team and Spain in 2014 just completely toothless as well um, completely overrun by counter-attacking and pressing um, I don't know if there's a pattern but it does show how competitive the World Cup is and of course the small sample size of three games uh, for the group means you can get surprise results I, I suppose it seems to underline a, a broader sporting maxim, which is that it's very hard to win something and even harder to, to win it again. And I think that 
that's often, isn't it, put down to essentially a, a psychological point, a motivational issue when you've already reached the summit. Yeah, I think that can be true. I think that can be true. Um, so yeah, maybe in that sense, maybe you need to freshen things up more if you've won things rather than if you haven't won things. Maybe there is an argument for that. So you, you sat down to work out the, the anatomy of the World Cup winners uh, over the last six tournaments. You're looking for trends uh, and you find you find a few little, little bits of signal, shall we say. Um, some of them seem obvious and some of them seem almost counterintuitive uh, you've already touched on one of them this idea that like in life in world cups experience is is helpful that makes sense yeah the, the average age of a, a world cup winning side tends to be relatively high i don't think that necessarily has to be prescriptive for what future teams will do but yeah i, I think it's more about it's usually a settled group it's usually players who are familiar with each other and i think there's lots of stories where the players that we now see as World Cup legends were, were really doubted going into a competition. Um, I think the obvious example of that is Ronaldo, I mentioned earlier. Um, 2002 is probably the best World Cup any individual has had uh, this century, but he'd had a really difficult time coming into it. And I mean, Ronaldo's Ronaldo, but he he really had barely played for three years. So how he suddenly kind of got up to speed and in full fitness for the World Cup is, is incredible. Um, and there's a couple of other examples. I mean, Iniesta in 2010, he had a really difficult injury hit season, uh, but Del Bosco was just never going to leave him out of the starting 11, no chance. And in 2014, Schweinsteiger was was really doubted. He'd had a poor season with Bayern. I'd actually argue he probably never recovered his club form. I mean, he went to Manchester United after that tournament and I mean, I can't remember him doing anything there, to be honest. But at the World Cup, he just suddenly put together this month of brilliant performances, both technically and in terms of his his battling qualities. So, I mean, there's some individual examples. You could you could look at Pogba in 2018 or Totti in, in 2006 as well. Um, but I think it's more of a kind of overall thing. It, it's not just about picking form players. I think it's about picking the players who have, you know, have been picked for the country and generally done the job over a period of years um, because they tend to have good relationships with their teammates and, and there tends to be a bit more of a, a collective understanding. Just picking up on that idea of players heading into tournaments being doubted and ending up as, as legends of World Cup folklore, can we just try and find a name or two, get in front of it, then we can say that we're the greatest visionaries of 2022? <laughs> I mean, based on what you're saying... The two that sprung to mind for me were Harry Maguire, obviously, just because of the the level of doubt and probably some stronger adjectives you could use there, stronger nouns, I should say. Um, and Sergio Busquets is someone I'm going to put forward as well, <laughs> just because it's, it's sort of linked tactically, both of these guys here. I think I'm right in saying that the worst bits of Harry Maguire are defending or have been defending space and just getting himself in a real tangle of whether to, to move forward and get tight, whether to drop off, doing neither, space in behind, disaster, and it looks terrible. Sergio Busquets, there are no doubts over what he can do very well. There are also no doubts over what he doesn't do very well, particularly in the modern game, particularly teams who might now attack a lot better in transition 
against a Barcelona side that are, are almost always going to dominate the ball. And again, visually, it's so obvious when a team is attacking that Busquets cannot cover the distances that other elite players in his position cover. But in major tournament international football, it feels like the way that the games look, the, the, the slowness of the tempo might help these players individually just to have fewer examples of their biggest weaknesses. And in Maguire's instance, defending his box, doing what he has done so well for his career so far and very notably for England for the most part. And Busquets dictating the tempo of a game, picking good short forward passes, fizzing the ball into into wide players and into, into players in little pockets of space. I'm putting forward one of Harry Maguire and Sergio Busquets to be the 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 the, the player doubted heading into Qatar who will end up as a legend. I think Busquets is a really good shout actually, especially considering he of course was part of the starting eleven who won it in twenty ten. I mean if he was to do that again it'd be quite relatively unusual. Really yeah. unusual in fact to win two World Cups twelve twelve years apart. So yeah that's a good example. I mean maybe Cristiano Ronaldo is is not a bad that's shout lovely. as well. I mean kind of fits into what you're saying about style of play. I mean, doesn't have the kind of dynamism of of other attackers, but obviously, uh, I mean, the most prolific goal scorer in the history of international football is, is a pretty big status. And you dare say he'll pop up with a few goals here. So yeah, I don't know whether it will happen again, but it's it's not necessarily the form players, I, I think is the, uh, the thing to be saying here. It's, uh, yeah, you can look through and, and find various examples of players who had a really difficult season and ended up being the player of that tournament. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hi, I'm Adam Crafton, 
and I'm the host of the Athletics' new documentary series, Away From Home. We've been following Ukrainian football team Shakhtar Donetsk through the Champions League group stage. They've had to play their home games in Poland following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The first bomb, I never forget. In this series, we're going to take you inside Shakhtar. Travelling with them across Europe as they set out on their Champions League odyssey. It's not only about football now, it's about show that we are fighting. I'll be speaking to those in Ukraine itself, hearing stories about how the war has affected them. My wife's father, he died. They killed him here. Subscribe now to Away From Home to follow the whole story. One of the things we've spoken about a few months back was we discussed the idea of managers being able to communicate with their players on the pitch via a headset of, of some sort, like they do perhaps, let's say, in the NFL with the offensive coordinator and the quarterback. It was an idea that you very strongly disagreed with, didn't want to see happen. And something that you said when we spoke about it has stuck with me, and, and that was you talking about basically what managers want most is control. I wonder if going back to the point about an experienced core, players that they've used before, do you think this is also to an extent about control and managers wanting to feel in control? They know these guys, they broadly know what they do, therefore they probably have a good idea of what they can and can't do, whereas the, the wildcard options, you know, you, you, you're leaving a little bit more up to fate. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, that reminds me of something that is is not at all related to the World Cup, but I'm going to say it anyway because I think it's interesting. I remember when Sam Allardyce signed um, Michel Salgado when he was at Blackburn and he was talking about his experience. And he said the reason he valued Salgado being so experienced was not because Salgado knew what to do on the on the pitch, but because Allardyce had all the statistical information going back through his whole career and he knew exactly what Salgado would do on the pitch. And I think that was quite an interesting revealing insight into what managers think. They don't want unpredictability. They kind of want to know what they're going to get from players. So yeah, I guess that relates to what you're saying. Um, and I think I think we can tend to underestimate the kind of off-field personal side of being a manager and having a squad. Um, I think if you've just worked with a player every month or so, uh, going back three or four years, you do have a personal relationship with them and you probably do end up trusting them and believing in them more than if you just call up, you know, an Ivan Tony type figure. So yeah, I think managers do tend to, certainly in the starting 11, I think tend to favour quite experienced players. Great to get an Allardyce reference on this podcast, yeah. given that he is the the grandfather of football analytics, of course, uh, and that's a and the shorting ser- shortest serving England manager as and well. the shortest serving England manager as well. I did just want to flag up that World Cup winning teams have been getting younger. Uh, obviously, we're we're always using a pretty small sample size here, six teams over the last what twenty four years now, but the last two winners have been notably younger than. Italy 2006, for example. <laughs> Germany in 2014, their average age was, was 26.6 in the whole squad. They had 14 players, 25 or under. Um, France, 2018, 25.5 average age, the youngest by a distance uh, in the time period. Over a year younger per player than Germany in 2014 and three years younger per player than Italy in, in 2006 with 15 of their squad uh, aged 25 or under. Uh, at that time uh, is that is that a reflection of experience becoming less important michael or perhaps 
player average age is just getting younger over the last decade or so. Maybe the latter. I mean, I think it's also interesting as well that those were very long-term managers. Deschamps and, and Yogi Lowe had been in charge of the, the country for a long time. And it seems to me like really the youth came with the backup players. I'd be interested to know the starting 11 average age. Um, it feels to me like they were kind of looking forward to future tournaments as well and picking players who would do, uh, do a job for them in the future. Whereas someone like Lippi in 2006... I didn't get that vibe at all. He he was just picking his best players to win that tournament, probably because he knew he wasn't going to be around for much longer. Although in the end, he did end up taking taking charge again for 2010. But yeah, you get my point. Uh, let's talk about another uh, another theme that you picked out here: tactical flexibility, basically, an ability and an openness to switching things up in tournament rather than a dogmatic, unified approach that's completely ingrained. Yes, yeah, so I'd say flexibility in quite a specific sense here. I don't necessarily mean that they have two or three formations they can go to uh, switch between throughout the tournament. I mean, there's often a big system change midway through. So France in 98, they started playing with Thierry Henry out wide and lots of pace and width. And then they ended up playing two number 10s, Zidane and Jorge behind Givash. Scolari, as I mentioned earlier, made a, quite a major change, got rid of Juninho and brought in Cleberson to give extra steel in the defensive area. Lippi, I think, was in 2006, was a manager who did have two different systems going into the tournament, but he did also kind of switch from one to the other. He, he started off playing 4-3-1-2 and by the end of the tournament was just very obviously 4-4-1-1 and a lot more solid, a lot more disciplined, a lot more structured. 2010, I think maybe the slight exception, Del Bosque resisted the temptation to switch from a 4-2-3-1 to 4-3-3, but he did make a couple of big personnel changes involving Torres going out and Pedro coming in and Iniesta sw uh, switching flanks and David Villa going up front. So it did feel like a bit of a system change to me. And then the last two winners as well have made quite major changes. Germany, again, not in terms of the formation, but they started off with Philip Lahm in the centre of midfield, which feels really weird now, but that's what he'd been doing under Guardiola for, for Bayern. And after the group stage, I think, or no, sorry, after the Algeria game in the second round, uh, Yogi Love completely changed it, put Lahm back at right back, put Boating in the, in the middle of defence, felt like a completely different team. And then France, they actually went very early after their first game. They did the absolute inevitable thing of trying to build a really flexible, fluid team around lots of quick, uh, you know, versatile runners and ended up just putting Olivier Giroud back in the team so that those players had someone to bounce passes off, which, yeah, just seemed inevitable. But they're, they're often, I mean, if a manager goes into a tournament not knowing his best formation, I don't think that's an issue. It, it just doesn't seem to be based upon the, the teams who've, who've won it recently. And aren't all of those, almost all of those switches more or less conservative in their nature? Either adding an extra defensive player or going back to a, you know, a simpler system like moving Lahm back to fullback because he's not playing for a Pep Guardiola team anymore. Like sticking Giroud up top, even though he's 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 not the exciting name, he's not the exciting talent. Those are all broadly conservative moves, right? Which again feels notable for what we've been talking about throughout about what it what it is to get it done in international football. Yeah, I think you're right. The, the Giroud one is interesting because I think it's quite similar to Germany at the previous World Cup. Didn't start the tournament with Closer up front. They started it with Thomas Muller floating around and they went back to Closer. 98, again, 
Givash comes in as the fixed attacker. These are players who didn't really regularly score at those tournaments, but they did offer that kind of reference point for the other attackers. So you're right, it does tend to it does tend to be less ambitious, I would say, in the way that they play. I think that's a, a good we'll point. We're keeping a close eye on the first round of fixtures. And if we see anyone doing something that looks in any way exciting or interesting or ambitious <laughs> tactically, some you know, a fluid front line or whatever it could be, we'll we'll know. You'll 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 be you'll be four two three one by the by the knockouts. Don't you worry. I think France are an interesting one to touch on, particularly Deschamps when we talk about this, because um, you and I have spoken a lot about uh, French football in the nineties uh, while you were writing your excellent book uh, on that topic and many others as well. And I've, I've managed to go back through um, some of the the research for that book and found some quite interesting quotes. I think are pertinent to this. Firstly, on on Jacques' switch up, um, Dugarry spoke about, you know, the fact that they played four attackers in the first game, Henri Givash, Jokeyev and Zidane, and behind them two winners, but then the system changed. And Dugarry says after a discussion with his staff, he installed a scheme with a more well-stocked midfield. So again, a conservative approach. Despite this mostly defensive system, we were always able to create chances and score goals. Of course, we had talented players like Zidane and Deschamps. and The fullbacks pushed high up the pitch and created overloads. We won the World Cup with a defensive organisation because the players adhered totally to the system. And the most important thing outside of the system is the confidence that the manager gives to his players. Uh, and it, it made me wonder whether uh, Deschamps, who of course was won that cup in 1998 as a player, won the cup in 2018 as a manager. I wonder what his influence was even as a player, because in a biography about Didier Deschamps, it says in, in that even as a player, he was having an impact tactically. And it suggests that Jacquet adjusted his tactics in accordance with Deschamps because Didier possessed a rich and sharp tactical culture the the more you read about french football over the last 25 years the more appreciation you have for deschamps imprint on their successes yeah you're spot on and actually it's quite interesting to read some reports from the time around euro 2000 as well where um again he was kind of being written off and everyone wanted him out of the team people wanted petit and vieira together in the engine room because they're playing together for arsenal but actually i think it's world soccer magazine are just incredibly complimentary about deschamps and his tactical intelligence and I see him almost in exactly the same way as Dunga at that time, who was similarly criticised for being a little bit small and slow and, you know, not that ambitious as a player. But they played such a, a key part. And of course, Dunga, like Deschamps, went on to manage his country, what, 10 years after that, 15 years after that, didn't lead them to the World Cup as uh, as Deschamps has. But uh, they're a very good team under Dunga in in, uh, in 2010, I think, probably. Probably should have won that competition, but yeah, he's he's a really he was a really important player, um, and he knows how to win tournaments. Doesn't I mean they? You know, he's won he won two as a captain. Uh, he got to the final of the Euros as well on on home soil in 2016, and of course won the World Cup last time out. So it's uh, he does seem to get a lot of criticism, Deschamps, doesn't he, for someone who's one of the most successful people in the history of football? Not on here, he doesn't. Uh, one of the trends that that I would consider to be counterintuitive um, revolves around performance in the group stage, Michael. If we think it's very difficult to predict a winner of the World Cup pre-tournament strikes me it's almost even harder to do that after the group stage has taken place because so many of the winners seem to underperform, underwhelm in the first three games. 
Yeah, so this was an interesting one because I'm not sure the statistics necessarily reflect the the feeling at the time, if that yeah. makes sense. So the points totals for the last six winners, France in 98 and Brazil in 2002, both got nine points. Fair enough. And since then, the eventual winners have got seven, six, seven and seven points. So pretty good. But there was just, it was about more than... Just whether they won or not. I mean, if you remember the reaction to France's group stage performance four years ago, I mean, they were so bad to watch. They were just horrible, horrible games. No real cohesion or kind of attacking ambition from the team. And I think you can basically say that of the last four winners. I mean, Germany in 2014, first game, they thrashed Portugal 4-0 in part because Portugal went down to 10 men in the first half. But they were, I mean, pretty bad against Ghana. And, and not particularly exciting against the US. And in the second round against Algeria, that game where Neuer spent the game sweeping miles outside his goal. I mean, they came really close to elimination, I think. I remember that fondly as I'd, I had £2 bet on Algeria <laughs> to win the tournament at 2,000 to 1. So I was, I, was quite, I was quite rooting for them. As Spain in 2010 lost their first game of the tournament against Switzerland when they were really, really bad. I mean, not just missed chances. They didn't really create chances. Um, and I still don't think they completely recovered by the end of the groups. And Italy in 2006 were pretty poor. I mean, against the USA, you know, really bad performance. Even in the second round against Australia, they needed that um, oh my God, yeah. gross, so should we say, winning a penalty very late mm. on. I mean, yeah, it, it maybe works even better if you extend it to the first four games of the tournament and include the second round stage because it's been some really bad performances from the eventual winners against teams really you'd expect them to be beating pretty comfortably. And I suppose on the flip side, often the teams that romp through the group stages, scoring loads of goals and looking great, almost feels like they've, they have they go too early. Generally, they don't tend to go on and win the tournament. They don't keep it up for seven games. I was trying to go through, remember who everyone fancied the most at the end of the group stage. 2014, I think Colombia would be up there. I think they played really good football. Yeah. Um and of course, they didn't get past the, the quarterfinal stage. Chile were quite exciting in, in 2010. I I mean, I think Brazil crop up a lot here. I think people underestimate how good Brazil have looked going into the quarterfinal stage. I think, I could be wrong. I think they were the favourites going into the quarterfinal stage in 2018, 2014 because they're on home soil, even though they weren't a great team. 2010 as well and 2006. I can't remember in 2002, but they were really not fancy going into the tournament. And then, of course, actually won it. But um, I think they've always been the team to beat Brazil, even though they haven't won it for 20 years. I think they've always been the probably the strongest side after the first four games of the competition. I just love how thin the line is between being a well-fancied nation that goes out either in the group stages or in the round of 16 to national disgrace and also playing quite poorly in a lot of the first three or four games and winning the tournament and then being sort of deified from that point onwards. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's so exciting, I think, before uh, next week's World Cup. This might be a very strange question, but are there any of the big teams that you would predict a poor start that you could look at the group stages and think, I wouldn't be surprised if, if this is the one that scrapes through on five points, but everyone back home is getting a little bit concerned about it. See, I think Brazil have got quite awkward opponents because that has to be taken yeah. into account here, right? They've got Serbia first up, yeah. 
against Mitro, the best striker in the world at the moment. Uh, then they've got Switzerland, who, who I believe to be one of these teams who, under the radar, always seem to have a core, an experienced core, dare I say it, uh, and then Cameroon uh, as well. Uh, Opponent-wise, I could see a lot of awkwardness for Brazil, perhaps more so than Argentina, who've got Saudi Arabia in their first match, should be among the weakest in the tournament, then Mexico and Poland. Um, France start with Australia, uh, England start with Iran, Spain start with Costa Rica. So I, I'd like to single out Brazil here uh, for a, a slow start uh, and, and champions come the end of it. <laughs> I think that's not a bad shout. I'd be inclined to think that Brazil are just... They are quite good and they are quite cohesive yeah. in the final third. So I wonder whether that counts against them. I mean, is England the best shout here? They... I mean, they're very defensive. The side is, is going to be loaded up with defenders. They've got players who I think are at their best running into space. I think if Sterling and Saka are the wide players. And even Kane, because I think Kane sometimes at his best when he can come short and knock balls in behind. And I mean, Iran are very defensive. It's hard to play good football against Iran. US, I, th- I think, are quite difficult opponents. And Wales, again, are, are going to play deep and going to play on the counter. And I just think the the whole England-Wales thing may be a bit of a level of the same way it was against Scotland in the Euros. I, f- I feel like that group, I mean, it's a close group. It's the group with the lowest average world ranking. But I feel like it's going to be a group of quite few goals. So, I mean, I'd back England to get through, but I bet they won't play very good football in the group stage. Maybe it's uh, a five or seven point group stage for England uh, uh, with some pretty ugly performances. And then maybe Southgate can do what we've questioned him for not doing previously and show a bit of tactical flexibility as discussed as a feature of the last six winning World Cup teams. And maybe that switch will be Jack Grealish, Phil Foden, have the keys to the city. <laughs> We're really struggling in and around the penalty box to unlock these defences and you're the guys to take us to success. So the opposite of what you correctly identified is the usual <laughs> switch of going even more defensive. Can we yeah. go even more defensive than Trippier at inverted left wing back? <laughs> Probably not. I mean, even Saka and Sterling would probably be the most, in a way, be the most cautious wide options, right? With, you know, Saka has been tried at wing back and Sterling has played a slightly unusual role in recent weeks for for Chelsea as well so yeah I'm not sure you can get more defensive than that yeah in very basic tactical terms I don't think there's a more defensive approach than five at the back and and a proper double pivot in midfield as well in, in Rice and Phillips if that's what he goes with so not boding that well on that front um, are, there, are there any other things that we need to flag up here I know you looked at whether a team that wins the World Cup generally has a goal-scoring striker. You know, this is a, a classic conversation in club football as well. The old, we just need a 20-goal-a-season striker and we'll achieve our ambitions. That's basically disproven at club level and I feel like at international level as well. Givarch and Giroud are fresh in my mind here. Yeah, I think this is probably the main takeaway, actually, when you look at the last six World Cup winners. So, yeah, we know about Givarch and, and Giroud, as you just mentioned, for France in 98 and 2018. The big exception, of course, is Brazil 2002 with Ronaldo. But actually, if you don't... I mean, if you look at the the top scorer for all these nations, they fare relatively well. I mean, 2010, Spain, Villa got five goals. But actually, when you look at more closely where those players played, you find that very few goals come from the number nines. So 
David Villa scored five times in 2010, but all five of his goals came in games where he started from the left with Torres up front as the kind of battering ram, not playing very well. And when he switched to playing up front, he didn't score. Um, you can look at Italy in, in 2006. They're a bit of a complex one because they played two strikers in, in three of their games. But Luca Toni was their main striker for the tournament and he only scored in one of the seven games. Okay, he scored two goals in that game against Ukraine in the quarterfinal. Um, even Germany, to a certain extent, as I say, they, they changed their approach to bring him closer after the second round. Um, and he scored one goal in, in the quarterfinal, semifinal and final combined, which isn't that many considering Germany scored nine in that period. So the more you look at it, the more you just don't have goal-scoring number nines winning this tournament very often. It's It's really about... I mean, whether you want to call him a false nine or whether you consider them a target man, I think to a certain extent, the two can confuse into one. I'd, I'd put Giroud and Kane in that kind of mould. Um, like a facilitator. Yeah, absolutely. Just occupying defenders and, and letting the others create space. So it's, you know, the star of these sides has usually not been the number nine. It's been, you know, Villa playing from wide or Mbappe playing from wide. They're the main goal scorers. And you do need just a fixed number nine to kind of just make a nuisance of himself rather than necessarily score lots of goals. Mm. And in the knockout stage, we've spoken about the group stage. It's a bit confusing how poor many of the World Cup winning teams have been in the group stage. What about in the knockout stage? What, what are the features of a team that goes on to win the thing? Well, two things. I mean, one, they often need extra time and or penalties. So Brazil in 2002 and France in 2018 are the two sides who haven't needed extra time or penalties in their four games. But everyone else has. Germany needed extra time twice. Spain needed it in the final. And then France in 98 and Italy in 2006 needed one period of extra time and then another period of extra time and penalties. And the other thing that is maybe obvious, but you need to keep clean sheets. And when you look at the, the record of this, the last six winners in their 24 combined knockout games have kept 17 clean sheets, which is, I mean, 17 out of 24 is pretty high, isn't it? And you can also, I mean, consider that a few of those games went to extra time. So, of course, Germany in their second round game against Algeria in 2014, they kept a clean sheet in in 90 minutes um, before conceding an extra time. And even when these sides did concede goals, they're quite often consolation goals that weren't really relevant. I mean, that's Germany's two concessions in the knockout stage in 2014 were both consolation goals, two of France's in 2018. So yeah, it's the obvious thing to say, but you look at Spain in 2010, they kept four clean sheets and that's why they won it. Not because they were scoring lots of goals. They scored four goals in... Uh, four knockout games and only eight goals in seven games overall but they kept four four knockout stage clean sheets and therefore they won the tournament yeah certainly a stronger indicator clean sheets defensive solidity than you know attacking effectiveness um only 12 of those 24 games that the last six winners have played in the knockouts uh, has seen the team score more than one goal in it um, so certainly a stronger indicator uh, on the defensive end uh, I wanted to to kind of project some of this discussion onto the upcoming World Cup and use what I will very loosely call the Michael Cox model to highlight a, a potential winner um, the, the first thing is to say is the Michael Cox model as I understand it basically spat out the favourites Brazil to win the tournament uh, that's because 
I, for my working anyway, they have absolutely a core of experienced and excellent players. Um, they've got a manager in Tietje, Tietje, mm-hmm. who is, as far as I can tell, known as a pretty pretty safe pair of hands, both in terms of, you know, not a gung-ho manager by any means, so probably reining them in uh, as necessary, but also potentially has a little tactical switch in him maybe you'll tell me I'm wrong there and then as I mentioned a decent chance of being poor in the group stage just because of what I perceive to be the awkwardness of their opponents maybe compared to some of the other teams Um, so yeah Brazil it turns out after all that the favourites yeah I would agree with that the caveat to that would be I expected Brazil to win it in 2010 and 2014 and 2018 and they (laughs) have never won it so um (laughs) They tend to they tend to let you down a little bit. I think with just a sudden really bad performance out of nowhere, having looked really good in the first four games of the competition. But yeah, I do think Brazil look good. I think Neymar looks in fantastic form. And uh, yeah, they would be my favourites to win it. There you go. Um, we're going to be previewing all the groups next week on this podcast. I just, my main takeaway, frivolous as it is from this whole discussion, from all the work that you've done, is like, I just love this idea now of people listening to this pod, myself as well, supporting a nation and that nation like scraping through the group stages, looking terrible and basically reacting really positively because you know that this is a trend. World Cup winning teams tend to not look particularly convincing in the group stages. That's what World Cup winners do. And then conversely, you could support a nation who absolutely romp it, thump their way through the groups and you're just getting more and more concerned. There's a cloud gathering over you with each thumping win and you're getting less and less confident because you know it's very rare for a team to keep it up for all seven games. Yeah, I mean, I think if we had to summarise it with one sentence, it would be that good attacking football is overrated in terms of winning the tournament, right? The, The teams who look really exciting tend to just blow up a bit and the teams who look really dull and grind out nil-nils and one-nils tend to go pretty far. Well, it's not the most exciting conclusion, but it's been a, a joyous journey to go on you, on with you, Michael. Thank you very much. The World Cup is just over a week away from where we are now. And the best place to get the best coverage of it, all under one roof. Michael, of course, Mark Carey's going to be doing some great stuff. Liam Tharm has been working unbelievably hard to preview this World Cup tactically for you. And the first pieces are already on the site. There's going to be so much going on on The Athletic site and app. So uh, theathletic.com forward slash tactics. If you're not a subscriber, but you'd like to sign up today to make the most of uh, the World Cup, Cup coverage, head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics. Otherwise, just make sure that you are subscribed to this podcast feed so that you can join us next week for our two-part Tactics Pod style World Cup previews. Join us then. Bye-bye. The Athletic.